Hey, Red Hills Church, thank you for joining our summer podcast. For the months of July and August, we'll be offering our messages as well as playlists of our worship songs and morning announcements via Spotify as well as all streaming platforms. If you're new with us, we would love to connect with you. You can head to our website, redhills.church, and find the digital link for the connection card there. If you would like to continue to worship today through generosity, you can give online at our website, redhills.church give. Well, let's go ahead and dive into our message with Pastor Lane talking on identity. Really, really exciting. Um, I hope that you are excited about this as I am. I mentioned last week that it, this is kind of like an arranged marriage. We don't really know each other. We're going to figure it out. But um, I think God's going to do some really, really cool things. I'm really excited to be here. My family's really excited to be here, too. Um, yeah, and we're going to learn what it means to partner together in the renewal of all things here in New Bergen and Red Hills. Amen? It's going to be good. I'm also really excited because we're kicking off our first teaching series together. Uh, it's going to be a quick series, three weeks, on a concept that I picked up from Dr. Kara Powell. She's an academic from uh, Fuller Seminary who has done a lot of work specifically with youth. And she has this discipleship model that I found to be really helpful. It comprises of three main facets of human existence, identity, belonging, and purpose. And this is the name of the series, Exploring Our Identity, Belonging, and Purpose. When it comes to human beings, we uh, usually thrive when these three things come into alignment. When all three of these tanks are full, uh, that's, that's usually when we're feeling pretty good. And likewise, when I'm feeling anxious or fear, fearful or discouraged or lost, uh, this is because one of these things is called into question. When one of these things is called into question, it kind of throws off the rest of it. Uh, and these three ideas, they beg three important questions that we're going to be exploring in this series. One is, who are we? The second is, where do we belong? Slash, who do we welcome? And the third is, why are we here? So those are going to be the three just small questions that we're going to wrestle with together in our first series. Uh, and as soon as we start to think about this, even just a little bit, it's easy to realize that identity, belonging, and purpose all have a lot to kind of do with one another. It's not as if each one of these things are separate questions that don't overlap. One of them will naturally flow into the other. And our understanding of, of who we are is deeply affected by where we come from, right, which impacts what we do, and it goes around and around. So we're going to do our best to simply address one of these ideas, one of these facets of existence at a time, specifically seeing what the scriptures and what God has to say about them. So today we're talking about identity. Identity. The question is, who are we? We're going to show um, a graphic that I think will helpfully help us think a little bit more about the concept of identity. Now, this is not some universally agreed upon principle ubiquitous across all schools of thought or anything. This is simply one framework of many that you can use to kind of, uh, help, it can kind of help us start thinking about what identity is. It's just the gospel according to Lane, so take it with a grain of salt. But to oversimplify things, we have three basic tiers of self. And these rings around the center kind of range from uh, the inner life to the outer life. The innermost circle contains our attributes, right? Things like our physical and mental abilities, our race or ethnicity, our cultures, our gender, our sexual orientation, perhaps a lot of other things in there. And then we have the self in regards to our relationships. That's the second ring. And the final tier consists of the expression of ourselves through um, our activities. So if we were going to look at Lane's 
rings right now of identity. Towards the, the, the second ring there in the middle, you'd have like my race, my ethnicity. I'm half Filipino and half white, which is comprised of mostly French and Scottish. I know I look very Scottish. That's usually people guess when they see me. <laughs> You're Scottish, right? Um, yeah, and then uh, physical, mental ability, um, sexuality, maybe, you know, week one, maybe we don't want to dive too much into my history there, but um, we have my, my <laughs> that was a joke, that was a joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and then on, on the outer, the second ring there, you have my community, my family, my wife, my son, my friendships, my, my faith, right? I'm a father. Um, and then on the outer ring there, we have like my occupation. I'm, I'm a lead pastor, if, if you haven't heard about that yet. And then um, I have my hobbies and my, my, taste, my, my tastes. Uh, I'm really into Star Trek. I'm gonna work that into most of my sermons from here on out, so get used to it. Uh, you can start now watching all of the Star Trek series that are available on Paramount Plus and Netflix, so good luck with that. Um, yeah, so those are kind of my, my, my rings of identity. Now, I'm making, I'm making light of this, but if you notice, in our culture, there's a lot of chaos around the center of this target specifically, right? There are a lot of heated discussions and opinions around the nature and the implications of a person's identity, especially when it comes to this inner life. Disagreements around race and gender, sexuality, ability, they have a tendency to be quite volatile. And frankly, this is not that surprising, right? Because anger is very helpful. Anger is actually a very helpful emotion. Anger is not innately bad. It alerts us when a boundary has been violated, right? It exists as a way to protect and preserve the self. So the closer we get to that inner circle, the more sensitive our hearts can be, right? So as a church, as we attempt to navigate the topic of identity, I think it will be important for us to approach these conversations with grace, with patience, and with empathy. I believe that our hope should not be to add to the potential chaos, but to convey the peace of Jesus into it, right? So the chaos around these three rings, they can be pretty intense, which is why it's important for us to try and figure out what goes in the middle of that target. What is the anchor? What is the center of gravity for a human's identity? Because when our understanding of that innermost life is shaken or misled, it throws the rest of the equation into chaos. But if we can grasp and settle into that inner life identity, the exploration of the rest of our identity can be an experience that is actually full of joy and adventure, yeah? So what is supposed to be at the center of the target? What's supposed to be in the middle? What do the scriptures teach us about our core identity? Well, for this, we're going to go to the beginning. Literally the beginning, the first page of your Bible. I love the book of Genesis because the creation story has a lot to say about uh, and teach us about who we are in relation to the creator. We're going to jump right to Genesis 1, um, and we're going to jump around in Genesis 1 and 2 a little bit. But let's start right at the beginning. I'll be reading out of the NRSV version this morning, but your version will do just fine, whatever you have in your hands. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, void, and darkness covered over the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. 
Let's pause here for a second, because this imagery this op- in this opening line, we're going to come back to it later, uh, but it says a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. The, the Hebrew word for wind here is ruach. This word is associated with the spirit of God. Usually in English, this Hebrew word is translated either wind, breath, or spirit. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so then after verse 2, We get this account of God creating everything in the cosmos, uh, each facet of creation getting its own day of loving labor from God. Let's pick up again in verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals on the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given them every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Continuing in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating, of creating that he had done. Okay, and then in the rest of chapter two, we get a sort of reaccount of how the creation story played out, and I want to pick up again in verse 18. How you doing? We doing okay? It's a lot of scripture, but it's a good story. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and, that, and the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, now these passages are very rich and full of all sorts of ideas we can unpack, but this sermon is only two hours long. We have to be more selective. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But we are going to unpack only certain ideas because we can't, we can't cover everything. We're going to talk about what, what in these scriptures pertain to our identity. What does this creation narrative teach us about who we are? The authorship of Genesis is a little elusive. Tradition for a long time placed Moses as the singular author, but most biblical scholars from the 1700s to today agree that there were likely multiple sources, maybe as poss- possibly as many as four. What's fascinating about Genesis, this story, uh, the Genesis story is the parallels that it has with the other creation myths from the surrounding Near Eastern cultures. 
Some would say that the similarities between them speak to a shared mythology that predates all of the ancient cultures. Others argue that Genesis was written as a response to other mythologies. Perhaps both are true. And I don't, we shouldn't get hung up on this because if God really is who he says he is, if he is who we believe him to be, that he's the creator of the universe, that he's Jesus, that he's the Holy Spirit with us, then we don't have to be afraid of how this works out. It's possible that he could have given his people a narrative that was absolutely true, knowing that it would contrast the cultures and the stories around them, intentionally highlighting those differences, right? I spent some time studying Leviticus, which is just a thrilling page-turner of the Old Testament. Um, It's basically a technical manual for priests, but what I learned while studying Leviticus is that God was using the cultural language of the ancients to communicate something about himself. He chose to speak the language that already existed so that we could understand. And most of the time, he would radically contrast his character with the character of the other gods and pagans around them, the goodness of who he was. So we're actually, we're gonna take a look at some of these other Near Eastern stories just briefly um, and other creation myths to kind of see what God might be doing differently in Genesis. Now, if you're like me, it may bother you to think that the creation story in the Hebrew scriptures bears any resemblance at all to other myths, that there might be some literary mechanics at work and all of that. But I, uh, but I don't think that certain simula- similarities need to make us feel insecure about the word of God. I don't think they need to. In 1931, C.S. Lewis, he wrote a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves about this famous conversation that he had had with J.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, in which he was convinced of the validity of the scriptures. Um, C.S. Lewis challenged that the scriptures were simply mythology. They were colorful stories meant to teach us about ourselves, but that ultimately they were fiction. To which J.R. Tolkien retorted that, of course, they're myths, but they were myths that just happened to be true. (laughs) C.S. Lewis wrote this in his letter. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. So, let's talk about the way the Genesis story was set apart from some some of these other mythologies. First, I want to look at the pagan gods. So the pagan gods in the ancient culture were always portrayed as these really powerful beings that were godlike in their abilities, but they were really a lot like human beings in their behavior. They were a lot like us. They were moody. They were violent. They were petty. They were selfish. Um, They were like these powerful toddlers that just stomped around that we needed to appease as human beings. And worship to these gods was seen as a way to, to earn their favor and to keep them from enacting their petty wrath on the earth, right? So the mythology surrounding these gods were pretty brutal. There are two major myths that I want to highlight today uh, and draw comparisons to. The first one is the Babylonian creation myth. It's called the Enuma Elish. And the second is the Sumerian creation myth called the Atrahis Epic. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. But in both stories, in both of those stories, human beings are created so that they could do the menial work of labor so that the gods could rest. They were created for slave labor. In Genesis, Notice that the human beings are created on the sixth day, which means that their first full day of creation is the Sabbath, the seventh day, the day of rest. So their introduction to the world was a whole day dedicated to the enjoyment of creation. That was human beings' introduction to the world. 
The word rest in Genesis is translated cease. This account was written after Moses had led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, right? Where the Hebrew identity had been rooted and relegated to work and production. That's what they were doing in Egypt. They were slaves in the Egyptian economy, right? One of the first things that Yahweh tells them when he brings them out of Egypt is that in their liberation, they will honor a day of rest, a day of ceasing from their labor. You will not be defined by what you can produce, by what you can do. You will be defined by your relationship with me. That's pretty cool. We have this culture that says work for the weekend, right? We're literally doing everything we can now that's hard so that we can be comfortable later, right? Put in the grind now to enjoy paradise later. But the garden was a gift right at the beginning. From a place of rest and relationship then flows the meaningful work, right? Notice the language, I have given you every plant yielding its seed that is upon the face of the earth. So the pagan gods, they created human beings for slave labor to make them food. So first of all, the pagan gods need food, whereas Yahweh is self-sufficient in need of nothing. And he creates humans that he might give them the joy of things like food. If you read on in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall, the account of the first sin, notice that the need to toil and to work the ground to produce food, that comes after we separate ourselves from the love of God. That's a part of the curse. And God also gives us human agency in this story. Notice that he says, whatever the man called each living thing, that was its name. God gave human beings some freedom to like make decisions, big decisions, whatever you call an animal, that's what it will be called, right? He said, I give you dominion over the earth. You don't work for the earth to produce stuff for us. I've given you this to rule and reign over with me. So Marduk, he's the Babylonian god. He uses the blood of the god that he killed to forge humans. It's like the spoils of war. And likewise, in the Sumerian myth, the flesh and the blood of the defeated gods are used to create human beings. That's disgusting. The creation of human beings is a result of violence, the reason of which is slave labor. But in Genesis, God breathes his breath, his ruach, into human beings. He creates them in his image. He doesn't use the likeness of his enemies. He gives of himself. The motivations are not slave labor. Yahweh creates out of the generosity of his character because it pleased him to do so. And he gives human beings dignity. Aw, sweet baby. In the making of everything leading up to humanity, right, all of the creation, God calls them good. But then after human beings are created, male and female, he declares that they are very good. The Hebrew word for very is me'ad, which translates to muchness. <laughs> they were muchness good. Um, usually, it's used in the context of the highest point in a scale. So very good in this context means exceedingly good. There is joy and pleasure in the creation of human beings. And women are given special dignity in the Genesis story. The author goes out of his way, or out of her way, whoever it was, to highlight the importance of this. This word helper is ezer. This is the Hebrew. This is a, a word that's used to describe, most of the time in the Old Testament, the nature of God himself. To quote one scholar, he says, the word helper in this section 
is not a is not demeaning term at all. In the Bible, it's used most frequently of God, in the Psalms particularly. When God helps people, it means that he does for them what they cannot possibly do for themselves. In this context, the word indicates that the woman would supply what the man lacked by implication of the Hebrew behind the phrase, just right for him, that he would provide what she lacked. Together, they would, complete, they would be complete and completely able to produce life. So we see this word, ezer, the helper, the rescuer nature of God, and then the word partner, this word meaning face-to-face with humanity. So God brought all the animals and the creatures who were subservient to Adam to Adam, and there was no suitable helper found, right? So God made a woman, his equal, out of man to be his partner. Notice the names of this woman throughout the, the story. He calls her woman in this poetic outburst of joy, right? He finally finds this helper that's presented to him, and he goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is my partner, my Isaiah. There's, there's, this, there's this singing that he's almost doing in the passage. But after sin enters the world, that's when he names her Eve, like he had named all the animals subservient to him before. And her name was reduced to her role, the mother of all the living. Part of the curse of God's design. Interesting. So when we look at the genesis of humanity, especially in contrast to surrounding cultures, understanding of what human beings were, we see that Yahweh uniquely gives humanity beautiful things out of his divine nature, out of his goodness dignity and worth. There is innate value in human beings. There's the gift of rest. There is, there is partnership with God. There's human agency. God created human beings because he wanted to, and it was exceedingly good. So who we are in the fabric of our DNA is exceedingly good. There's this old adage that is circulated around evangelical circles for a while that in order for there to be good news, there must first be bad news. This is only half true. Hebrew literature is structured in a way where beginnings always imply the end. This is why God is always referred to as the Alpha and the Omega at the same time. Our end is going to feel like our beginning. The beginning of good news is not that we are bad in need of a savior. It's that we are exceedingly good, but we messed it up, and God wants to make that right. That's the good news. When the center of our being, when the center of that target is unstable, when it's called into question, it sends the rest of ourself into chaos. In the same way that the wind of the Spirit hovered over the chaos of the waters, bringing order and light to confusion and darkness, when we invite the wind of God the Spirit of God, into our being. He broods over the chaos of our souls and our hearts bringing light, bringing order. He's able to remind us, remind our souls where we come from and who we are, who we were created to be, exceedingly good. So what does the wind bring exactly? What does the Spirit of God bring to the center of that target? What is the center of gravity for our identity? I want to turn briefly to one more passage. This is a story in the beginning of uh, the Genesis, if you will, of Jesus' ministry on the earth. It's found in Matthew chapter 3. It's going to be really quick, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but feel free. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, we see reflections of the creation story, don't we? For a moment, the heavens and the earth are connected just as they were in the garden. Light shone on the earth, and God spoke, and the Spirit descended over the water like the wind, the ruach. And just as God looked at his creation in Genesis, at his children, and said, it was very good, God looked down on Jesus, the second Adam, and said, this is the beloved on whom I am well pleased. What's mind-blowing about this reality is that Jesus teaches us, like we talked about last week in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So what is at the center of this target? What is the one thing that defines us before anything else? It is that we are the beloved of God. That we have his favor That when he looks at us, he says, I am well pleased. You are exceedingly good. At the center of this target is the approval, the affection, the love of Jesus. The only thing unlovable about you is the sin in your life. And Jesus dealt with that. He is making us into and will faithfully complete the work of forming us into who we were created to be. Dr. Gregory Coles wrote this in his book, We are a painted canvas in the hands of a master restorer, painstakingly cleansed and healed and remade until we become the irrecoverable artwork we were always intended to be. Problems arise in us when anything but beloved is at the center of that target. When we put lies at the center of that target, when we believe that we are defined by our trauma, by our mistakes, by our past, by the approval of others, by the perception of others. When we fail to recognize the loving approval of our Heavenly Father, the rest of our identity is thrown into chaos. Or we fail to recognize the belovedness in others, and here's where it gets a little harder to accept. Perhaps we, start, we stop short with their identity at their job their relationships, their religion, their sexual orientation, their race, and we fail to see into the core of who they are, beloved of God, first and foremost. But when we embrace the reality of the belovedness in other people, we can dignify the other facets of their identity rather than using those other traits and affiliations to dehumanize them, right? They are Republican, therefore they are fill-in-the-blank with some dehumanizing assumption. They are an immigrant, therefore they. They are gay, therefore they. When we rely on labels to categorize human beings, it gives us a subtle way of removing their humanity. 
Any time a group of human beings has been mistreated and it's been justified by the assumption that a particular group of people was not really human. Look at the Jews in the Holocaust, black Americans in the era of slavery. All of these things justified because they're not really human. But we are called, we are called to rise above that to see at the center of every human being that they are exceedingly good, beloved of God, perhaps lost their way, but Jesus wants to take care of that. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, The Weight of Glory. Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And the call is not to be blind but to the unique facets of their story, right, that make up their identity. That's not the goal. We don't close our eyes to their religion or their social status, their race, their gender. But the hope is that we see all of those parts of their humanity through the understanding that, first and foremost, they are beloved of God. When it comes to ourselves and those around us, we will be more inclined to love when we see at the center of that target the word beloved. Can we throw that graph back up there, actually, the beloved one? When you see every human being this week, I want you to think of this picture. Because the other rings of identity, there can be stuff that gets in the way of you trying to love that person. See that. See that first. And let it inform you how you treat the rest of them. Beloved of God. And with this, we come to communion. Worship team, you can come up too while I'm talking us through communion. Jesus did everything that he did because he desired to be with us again. That much is true. Everything that he did through his death and his resurrection, he did so that we could be with him again in the life that he created and intended for us, a life of perfect union. So he offered himself up in this sacrificial love so that he could deal with sin. He could deal with evil and bring us home. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is something that Jesus asks us to do in remembrance of him. If you have not yet said yes to Jesus, I'd like to invite you instead of consuming these elements to simply hold them in your hands and to reflect on them. Perhaps this is your first time at church. Maybe this is your 10th time. Maybe it's your 150th time. I don't know. Maybe you've been on a jury where you've been trying to figure out, do I believe in this Jesus person? Who is he to me? It's okay if you don't know yet. I want you to know that. It's okay. But these elements here, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That he died. That he gave up his life. And he defeated death and rose again to invite us into something better, into something that looks a lot more like Genesis. He did this for you. And so just reflect on these pieces. Reflect on the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. Know that it was an act of sacrificial love that he did for you. And if you're ready today to say yes to him, we're gonna have people available to pray with you. You can come and find one of our staff people or one of our prayer people after the service, whatever it is, we'd love to follow up with you just so we can pray with you, give you a Bible, something. 
get you started on your journey. So let's open the elements together as we partake. I would highly recommend you open the bread first. <laughs> Might be messy otherwise. <laughs> Cleaning crew will also thank you. Let's just take a moment. Perhaps there are things that I said today that really resonated with you, that really speak to you. Perhaps there are things I said today that really rubbed you the wrong way and you're feeling not great about it. Whether or not you liked what I had to say is honestly beside the point. What are you and Jesus dealing with right now? That's more important. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit is here. And when we open the word of God, and when we pray to him, and we worship him, and we glorify him, and we do this, that he wants to speak. So we're just going to take like 30 seconds. I want you to close your eyes, feel the bread in your hand, and I want you to reflect on the nature of God. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my new covenant, my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread and drink the cup. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that as the Father has loved you, you have loved us. That when you see us, despite our mistakes, our sin, our trauma, our hurt, our scars, you see us as first and foremost as your beloved. Exceedingly good. We thank you that you give us dignity. We thank you that you bring us healing. We ask that you would help us to share this love with the world. That when we look at others, we would see them with your eyes. Exceedingly good, beloved. We love you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.